afternoon and welcome to another uh, series in our podcast on art and its meaning. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about an art education uh, and the importance of uh, if you want to hone your skills to, to improve, what is it that we need to do? Um, it has been said that the arts cannot change the world, but they may change human beings who might change the world but only if they get a good grounding. So a good foundation in the arts is, is always necessary. Um, but uh, here with me today to discuss the, uh, the, the meaning behind all this is uh, here we have Lawin Connie Nagel, uh, who's going to give us some insight. And of course, we have David Curtis, who's about to celebrate his birthday. Uh, and he's going to give us some sight into the, uh, the background of an art education. And of course, both Connie and David, as well as being uh, experienced painters, are both teachers. And so I'm sure they're going to be able to give somebody like me, who uh, doesn't have an awful lot of talent, some good ideas on how to go about the process of getting an art education. Uh, I started out painting um, or back in the early 80s. Uh, when I was taking a workshop in Rockport, Massachusetts with uh, Roger W. Curtis, who was a very experienced marine painter, uh, interesting guy, a great demonstrator, and he was uh, made it look so simple, you knew you could just go out there and, and give it a good shot yourself. Uh, and he was always very good with his critiques. He would always find something good to say about what you were doing before he would go on to tell you how to improve. Although he was stumped one day when he came to look at my easel and my canvas and he looked at what I'd done and he looked at me and he looked at the palette and he said, you've got good colour pools, which I guess was a start, but obviously <laughs> not quite where we <laughs> wanted to be. Um, but then after I married David and married into a, an artistic family, it was sort of you either had to uh, you know, get in there and, and give it a try or just get left in the dust. So, But I knew that it was going to be difficult because um, although I enjoyed painting, I can enjoy watching others paint, I have no hand-eye coordination. The sight of a blank canvas to me is the scariest thing in the world. So let's open this up for uh, some thoughts. Now, Connie, I remember you saying that your first experiences, or, or what you remember about your first experiences, was having your grandmother help you learn to draw. So could you tell us a little bit about that? That's true. Um, I had a grandmother uh, that had been, um, she actually graduated from Cornell University um, in art, fine arts, and uh, was an academic trained painter. And um, my grandfather, she she grew up in Illinois, and um, she would summer down in Texas, in South Texas. And uh, that's where my grandfather met her and decided that he wanted to marry her. So he, he took a train up to Illinois and um, and proposed to her and brought her back to South Texas. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> and um, so um, early on in my, my life, um, I think I was six or seven years old. I was very young, and I was the one uh, grandchild who was very interested in learning to draw and paint. 
And so she set up a still life on the kitchen table, and I proceeded to first draw it and then paint it. It was my first painting, and um, I can't say it was extremely good, but I was quite proud of it. <laughs> and um, and I think that I was always fascinated with um, the paints. Um, my mother used to say that she loved to smell oil paints, and uh, I guess from her love of oil paints, I also became a lover of oil paints. So um, anyway, that was my beginning, and um, uh, I'm sure that David has his beginnings too. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of it, this whole podcast, all the uh, lectures we've done up to this point, I, I think it. When I look back at when we were going to do this one about art education, I look back into my past. A lot of it was spent. Uh, my dad was an artist. My older brothers were both painters and dabbled in the arts. My mom was the art critic. And I, I, think, I think it was much more about the aesthetic environment that I was involved in, in learning about art and not knowing as a child that I was learning the, the, the playing of the music uh, in the background. It was the right kind of music. Uh, the, the discussions at the dinner table, the all those things were much more about the philosophy of art and, and delving into art that way. And I think that was a good beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough later in life to meet a great teacher in the atelier academic tradition, Ives Gamel, who, was, uh, who really improved my drawing skills and my and understanding of what I wanted to do with painting. But I don't think I would have been as good a painter today if it wasn't for those childhood years, much like what Connie did in having her grandmother. And the I think it's the aesthetic environment yeah. that you put in. It's an artistic environment. Um, so was there an artistic environment down at Costa High School? Because didn't you yeah, also was, learn from that was my uh, uncle, uh, who was a very, very interesting man. Uh, uh, he loved uh, to, to, to quote um, Spensky and all kinds of philosophers. He believed... Artists were should be eclectic people. Um, he got you to think, and 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 stress the idea that painting is much more about thinking than just doing. Just to copy a a tree and have it look like a tree was never enough for these. There had to be something else there, and um, so I think I took that for granted that these aesthetics or the understanding of philosophy of art was always present and I think I was very fortunate. I know friends of mine who we both studied with the same teacher, Ives Gamel, years later coming to a demonstration I was doing said, I don't remember Ives saying any of those things and it it Hmm. was a comp, you know, I think we combined, we're like bees Hmm. and we go not to the same petunia we go to the rose the petunia the apple blossom <laughs> we collect the and make our own honey with that we don't just go back to that same petunia because eventually the petunia isn't going to be there. <laughs> and as a bee, we want that honey. That's right, yes. Well, I didn't realize we were going to be having gardening advice as well. But well, no. it, Can I ask you a question? <laughs> since you you're the monitor. Um, well, you're an art historian. And I think a lot of people going off to college, uh, I noticed that their prerequisite would be to study art history and to get a, a degree in art history. 
And um, so you have a thorough knowledge of art history. How do you think that applies to an art education? Let's say that because you dabbled in painting a little bit and now you're an art historian. Did it help you to experience the painting practically to be a better art historian? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I hate to describe myself as an art historian because that sounds like I have credentials after my name or something. And most of my interest and my research has come from um, what I've learned just from being around artists and reading because, you know, that we live in an area that has a history that's very important because every great American painter has passed through Cape Ann at some point from the 1850s till, say, 1950, um, it was a, a wonderful era in, in painting, and you would find that the, uh, the good teachers from uh, Cincinnati, like Frank Duvenek, and the teachers at the museum school in Boston, um, you have Paxton and, um, and Tarbell, who would be coming up here to paint, and then you'd have the people from New York as well. Everybody came to Cape Ann in the summertime, and of course the students would follow their teachers wherever, so they were getting a great uh, summer school education. I don't know that they were actually paying for that education or whether they were just going out and and learning from from these people just because um, they were all staying in the same area, say Rocky Neck, uh, which is why that became known as an art colony. We have two great art associations on on Cape Ann. We have Rockport Art Association that goes back to the early 1920s. We have the North Shore Arts Association that's uh, almost as old. And those art associations were important for the artists who were staying here in the summer to have somewhere to show their work in the hope of selling some of it. But mostly it was the fact that they could come and stay in an area like Rocky Neck, where there would be accommodation, there were guest houses, there were hotels sprang up all over, and then they would go out and they would paint all day, and you could step out of the door of wherever you were staying, it was such a small area, and there would be something to paint. And so I think, and they, you know, because obviously when you have oil painting gear, it's kind of heavy to carry about if you don't have your car, and you can just throw it in the back and drive to where you want to be. So it was important that they could get to some very scenic spots without having to carry gear very far. And then at the end of the day, they would go back and they would have dinner at the hotel and then they'd sit on the porch afterwards and they would be talking about the different ideas, where they'd been, what they were trying to do, how they were experimenting. Um, Paxton, for instance, was doing a painting uh, that's called The White Veranda. And at the time he did it, he was painting his wife on the veranda of the little hotel in, in Gloucester. Uh, and when he showed the painting uh, later on, when he'd finished it, and it was a beautifully refined painting, but the critics absolutely mauled it because he was experimenting with something he called binocular vision, which I'm sure you two know about. So I'll let you explain it better. But the, the idea was he was trying to do something different. He was summer, he was outside painting, they were enjoying what they were doing, but the critics felt this was not what they expected. They had these artists pigeonholed as to, you know, the American Impressionist, you're painting outdoors, we want blue skies, sunshine, girls in white dresses. And when any of these teachers would try and step out of that to try and do something different, just to experiment, to, you know, push the envelope a little farther, 
the critics would say, wait a minute, you can't be doing that. And, and yet the, these teachers wanted to try something different. They're trying to show their students something different. So it was a kind of education that they were getting that was, they were experiencing it rather than not in a studio being, having somebody teach them. They were out there with that teacher painting you know, shoulder to shoulder on, on Banner Hill. But perhaps, um, I digress a little bit, but perhaps one of you or both of you could explain the binocular vision part because it, today the white veranda painting is very valuable and is considered one of his great paintings. At the time, mm -hmm. they felt there was something wrong because the subject of the painting, which they felt was Paxton's wife, was fuzzy-faced. There were all these bars in front of her from the veranda. This is terrible design and yet what makes that painting so special today is is the way it was refined so connie do you, do you know the painting i'm talking about i do i do know the painting and um and binocular vision is uh, the way i understand it is is that you have something that is focused uh that you focus on um uh, uh and it is, it's actually a scientific um, kind of um, phenomenon, you know, that, that if you look at something closely, um, it comes into focus, mm -hmm. that one uh, object, and everything else fuzzes out. So what I think that Paxson was trying to do was um, he chose actually some part of the veranda to be in focus, and that is um, sort of these slats and and a doorway behind uh, his I wife. I think there's a, a rose and a rose that's, that's resting on top, and yeah. that becomes the focal point, and her face is is blurred, and and that all is consonant with this this idea of binocular vision. <coughs> And um, and actually, there's supposed to be an aura that they called. Um, um, now I've forgotten what the name is. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, it, the the aura around it's it's sort of like um, a halo. Yeah. And and that's where her face was in that kind of halo, um, and um, and it made it somewhat surreal. And also more mysterious, yes. and in in some ways it was more poetic. Yes, what she what ended up uh, happening in this in this painting, and I think hence it it became more valuable. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the I, I think the critics of that day. Oh yeah. Yeah, wanted something obvious, and he wanted to experiment. And the gentleman that you're referring to, who came, who theorized the binocular right. vision, might have been somebody that Paxton uh, talked with or read. Right. I mean, this guy, Edward uh, Herring is his name, and he was German. He, um, he actually was a, a medical doctor. He was, a, a he was also a researcher. He did a lot of work on, on eye movements and, uh, of course, uh, really discovered binocular vision and also developed a color theory that uh, is actually different from the traditional color theory that we have today. It's not red, yellow, blue, 
but rather red, blue, uh, red, green, yellow, and blue. And he says that's a psychological um, aspect of, of what, what we all find as being harmonious and pleasant to yeah. the eyes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and to stay on the topic of art education, here's a, here's a painter who's, uh, Connie's been painting for over 20 years, has decided that this is of inspiration the this color theory and I think is now immersing and you're going to write a paper I guess on the color theory I I and and how many color theories have you uncovered so far I would say at least six, six. <laughs> and she's only been doing this since uh, the last podcast I think art education is that it's the inspiration if I have a beginning student coming to me for the very first time out there and they look at me and they say, okay, you teach, you're the teacher, you teach me how to do a painting. And the first thing I would say, well, let's test your inspiration. Because if you're not inspired to paint, mm -hmm. uh, but rather just to be outdoors, well, that's fine too. But I, I, think, it's, I think it's that inspiration. And me as a, as, as a teacher, I don't want that flame ever to go out. I want that flame to mm -hmm. always be lit. Maybe they give up painting, but you want to make sure that that flame for the appreciation of art or understanding painting better is, is always there. Um, so it's, it's a little more gentle than maybe my teacher, Ives Gamble, saying, you know, maybe you should go out and be a plumber instead of doing this uh, that you've been doing for the last year and you're no good at it, so therefore go out and be a plumber. But he can be very direct. And, and I don't necessarily think that's all of art. I think he, he did leave a lot for the individual to come up with. And as I said, I, I had a storehouse, and I never knew I had a storehouse of information about, mm -hmm. about different paintings. But I think it's that, that, that flame, that inspirational light that, that guides us all as painters to find, and we're always rediscovering or we discover new things. And I think that's why a lot of, people get involved in painting is mm -hmm. because of the discovery. But I think it's very similar to your your lesson about art history is I think that's a thorough discovery. I mean, uh, Connie was mentioning to me that in doing all these different color theories, they all seem to come out around the same time. Yeah, the, the other thing that became fascinating, just like David's talking about this inspiration, um, I'm intrigued with the fact that between 1900 and 1950, all these color theories have come out and um, and exploded on the scene. So many people were interested in them. They were in Germany. They were in France. They were in America and New York. Um, all this stuff was happening. And then after the 50s, they died out. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a curious phenomenon. Why did they die out? What was going on? I mean, um, was it after the war, and therefore people were just trying to, you know, get back on their feet and 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 sort of pick up their their lives again after after a time that was really devastated, you know, Britain, Europe. Right. Um, Could have been. Could have been because then again, you're you're also bringing in all of the historical aspects to. Um, 
what, you know, the environment in which the artist is living in. You know, the other thing that was happening in the early 1900s, or 20th century, actually, um, is is uh, there were so many um, activities going on. There was, you know, movies were starting to be produced, um, lots of um, investigation on, you know, electricity and and uh, certain kinds of discoveries. Modern art came on the scene, and there was a lot of experimentation that was going on. Um, the, there's a uh, group called the Synchromist. These, these guys were sort of contrary to the Cubist, and they were all about color. And and they had they claimed that they had certain kind of rhythm and um, and that rhythm was sort of a a kind of half circle and um, and they did um, just like the cubists um, they would take um, a nude model and they would break her up into all <laughs> these colors and and forms and um, and they were studying color. And uh, that's the most fascinating thing, I think, is that, that art is, is never at a loss of experimentation. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you're right on the color. I think that was the big turning point or the big enlightenment of that 19th into 20th century was the, uh, the experiments with light and, um, and then we found color and then the different, all the different experiments with color. Uh, and I think that that was a, a revolution in a sense. But with that color also came this idea that uh, color and design together right. can, can, can create all these emotional feelings in somebody, in, in somebody viewing this, to, uh, the, the sort of suggestive art. Um, and, and I don't think we want to... We want to look at one painting or one artist better than another. We're not here to uh, pass judgment on different painters. But I think when it comes to art education, I, I don't think you can lose uh, by really studying the old painters, the masters. And the masters could be anybody who you would want. To and mm-hmm. In my day, it was, you know, it was Leonardo, it was Michelangelo, Raphael, mm-hmm. Titian, Velazquez, Vermeer, it was all the great Rembrandt, the great, great mm-hmm. painters of the past were, were part of the um, art education, an integral part of understanding how they approached art and to learn from them. So I think that's an important part too. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, and I suppose they've become old masters because they've stood the test of time. Um, but do you think, I was coming across something when I was doing some research for the Polythea star show that Rockport had last year, and she enjoyed drawing as a child, and her mother got her lessons with Beatrice Whitney Van Ness, who was a, a student from the Boston uh, Museum School. Uh, and the idea was, well, she was never going. young Polly was never going to be an artist because all she did was sharpen the charcoal and get dust all over herself but in fact she did go on to become a, a wonderful artist very imaginative artist but she enjoyed drawing she enjoyed the draftsmanship very much much like our son Sam who loves to draw but you know do you have to take if you're having an artic education do you have to take it a step further and learn everything do everything 
Because when Polly Thayer got to, she went to the museum school and she did a year studying um, anatomy and drawing with Philip Hale. But when she came to the second year at the museum school, she was studying um, colour and painting with Leslie Thompson, who's a, a terrific painter. But for some reason, she just couldn't get on with this. She didn't understand. She would ask him how she would go about it. She didn't know how to mix the paint. She didn't know the any colour theory. She didn't. She was totally at sea, and she couldn't get anything. She, he would just tell her, oh, go out and try this or that. But she, she couldn't get what she wanted from it. And she's the only person that I know of who actually dropped out of the museum school. Everybody else was trying to get into it. <laughs> um, uh, but she went on to... Um, hone her career by taking private lessons with um, with Philip Hale. Then she went on to study with Charles Hawthorne, and she was always always trying to do something different throughout her career. And that was another uh, long seventy five years, I think, of of painting. Um, but she was taking a bit here and a bit there because she didn't know how to go from being a draftsperson to being a painter. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have students who have that problem? Well, uh, I would say that if, if all the things about art have been invented, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to bother with this. I think there's, a, there's an unknown and a mystery to art that's in front of us all the time, and whether we can part the curtains or explore the cave or uh, go into outer space, wherever those thoughts are, I think art would be limited if you said, well, you got to do it. Step one is to draw the uh, draw the egg exactly right. Step two is then color it in with the, the colors that you see. Step three is then make it interesting to the viewer. I don't think if art has to have a progression like that, I don't think art will ever, I don't think people would be interested. I don't think it would be here. I, I think it's entirely different. I I also think that it has to be organic. I think that it's a process, um, especially, uh, and also I might say that that I think there's a spiritual quality to art, and uh, and that people go into art because they're trying to express themselves. They're mm-hmm. they're putting forth an expression. How that expression is going to manifest, we don't know. So, so it might be like Sam. It's um, it's rendering drawings and and using the craft of, of drawing, or it might be painting. Lots of people love to paint, mm-hmm. and um, and I think with Polly Thayer, um, you could see that um, if it it sounds like she she was really identifying herself as an artist, and she sort of stuck with an art traditional art education, I don't think that people today need to stick with a particular um, conventional art education. I think education, I think art is something that we can we can learn. We can learn through online courses. Mm-hmm. We can learn, um, you know, outdoors in plain air. We can have a, a one-on-one instruction. There's so many varieties and ways of learning art. So I, oh, I think it's... And also, too, to uh, one of the reasons for this podcast, Sight and Insight, is also, too, um, Connie and I, and Judy's pitching in, with the idea of, with the idea of a curriculum 
based on this method, which is to teach the uh, the creative side to art and not to downplay mm-hmm. it first, the philosophical side maybe, then to enter into it to find out how the individual then approaches seeing. How does that individual actually see the object in front of them? And if you were to say, well, you have to draw it first, that might, like Polly Starr, might discourage them when they pick up a awkward brush after they've had a very sharp pencil or a piece of charcoal mm-hmm. to draw something exactly. Then you hand them a number 10 brush and say, hey, here's some color, go to it. Well, what do I do? Yeah. And I th- right. and I think right. I think if I think in my experience of teaching is that everybody is different and everybody's got a different language within themselves um, about uh, a different language of, of communication to themselves that you have to allow that to ha- exist uh, or else it won't ever meet the end. And I think mm. the individual chooses. How, let's talk about finish in a painting, uh, art mm-hmm. education. So one student wants to polish that painting until until it turns into something other than what it is, and the other person really recognizes that that's that's good enough. Uh, one sketch out of doors, and I've got it, and that says everything I wanted to say. It's very personal. So if if I again, I had two boys who might have been interested in art, but they realized that uh, it's maybe it's better to go out and earn a living, <laughs> to pay off your student loans, <laughs> to still pay off your student loans rather than yeah. taking out. It's a it's a it's a difficult thing, and I think uh, sight and insight. We're going to be probably by the fall of the beginning of next year. We're going to have a nice. Uh, book out about the curriculum, the way we see uh, a way of teaching people to paint would be. So. And we're talking about painting, and mm-hmm. I'm not talking, I think drawing, and, and I mm-hmm. think we'll talk about this some other time. It's a good, it's a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Talk about the difference between drawing and painting. Yeah. And I think they're two different disciplines. Oh, I, now, yes, I, that, that's why I wondered whether you have to learn one before you go to another one, or do you learn them simultaneously? Uh, so that you don't have that sudden um, change from, oh, one minute, as you say, you're drawing right. with something that's very right. specific, and the next, you've got a completely different medium. I think I was going to mention something about what David brought up about um, uh, the finished product. Uh, that is also part of art education. I mean, is to know when to stop, yeah. to... to uh, to come to be satisfied with what you have done maybe it's one day's work and then you can put it aside and you can look back on it again that's part of the the uh way in which we can begin to value our work and um i think that when we're talking about art education it's about the whole uh gestalt (laughs) i'm back to that again (laughs) And uh, I know, I Connie Gishtal. Um and it's because um, we have we have the the painting process that we do, um, and and also we have the the piece that we finished. Uh, we we may accrue a number of pieces. Uh, we can begin to see how our our. Um, education has developed, mm-hmm. how we begin to understand how to to move through from start to finish uh, a painting project. Yeah. Well, 
I was, I'm sorry, we're just about out of time and I had so many more things that I wanted to say. So hopefully we'll be returning to this question um, another week. So I'm just going to leave you with an uplifting thought uh, before we all say goodbye. So art can transform lives. It gives us the power to question, to confront, to explore and to challenge how we think about the world. It's such an important part of our lives uh, such an important part of civilization uh, is to uh, is to have beautiful art around us and beautiful artists as well. So thank you, David, and thank you, Connie, for being here today. Uh, and now we're going to uh, move on, and uh, hopefully the uh, the light outside is beautiful. So maybe the artist will want to do a little painting. And so until next week.